Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Always good to have you with us. So we wanted to acknowledge something yesterday here in the United States was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is always observed on the third Monday of January each year. Martin Luther King Jr. was born in Atlanta, Georgia on January 15, 1929. He was a pivotal advocate for African-Americans during the civil rights movement in the United States. King experienced racism from an early age and those events stayed with him and eventually brought him to a life of activism. After graduating college with a doctorate degree in theology, King became a pastor in Alabama. He began a series of peaceful protests in the South that eventually changed many laws dealing with equality of African-Americans. King gave hundreds of moving speeches across the country and in 1964 was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. On April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was shot and killed while in Memphis, Tennessee. Although his life ended that day, the work that he had accomplished changed the nation. King will be remembered not only for his commitment to the cause of equality for African-Americans, but also for his profound speeches that moved so many. MLK Jr.'s words were spoken with hope that the future for African-Americans would be brighter and that they would finally be given the equality they deserved. We won't challenge you to remember the words and life of Dr. King today because we believe that we should all take its, his radical ideas of peace, justice, and equality to heart every day of the year. Dr. King is quoted as saying, an individual has not started living until he or she can rise above the narrow confines of their individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Dr. King was a man of action and we can bring that action into our lives every day simply by lifting each other up and challenging inequality and hatred wherever we see it. Today's conversation is about another topic, action, equality, and justice for all, a topic we are all working through ourselves with our team at Someone to Tell It To and communicating with the larger beloved community of which Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. referenced. And that topic is belonging. In this conversation, our guest, Sarah Judd Welch, who has been researching this subject for an extensive period of time, defines for us what belonging is and what it isn't, and how to foster it in our own spheres of influence. Sarah Judd Welch, she, her, of New York City and Brooklyn to be exact, believes that it is our collective responsibility to create environments and cultures in which everyone is seen, heard, and valued. When each of us belongs, we can transform together. As an organizational and community designer, she leads Sharehold, which is an innovation consultancy that designs and fosters belonging with teams of communities. Most recently, she led Redesigning Belonging, How Uncertainty Magnifies Belonging at Work, a research report and workbook that explores how uncertainty impacts one's sense of belonging at work, uncovers a methodology for assessing belonging, and facilitates conversations to develop a company's unique belonging strategy. Sarah is Dare to Lead Trained in bringing sociologist, researcher, and best-selling author Brene Brown's research on shame, vulnerability, and empathy into practice within teams. And we welcome Sarah to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. Well, Sarah, so good to have you in this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Tom and Michael. I'm so grateful that you reached out and that we could be here today. So one of the things, uh, as I was working my way through your, your biography on your site, it says that your current obsessions, we love this, include gardening, watercoloring, and being present. The <laughs> second right. two make perfect sense. 
but how do you garden in New York City? We're curious. Um, well, in 2016, I was taking a break from work and I just needed to do something that was not at my computer. So I built a garden on my partner's deck. And a few years later, when we split up and I moved out, my number one priority in finding a new apartment in Brooklyn was having garden space. So I made it happen. Um, I like moved to a different neighborhood where I could like get more space for cheaper. And I built a big garden on my back deck. So in the summertime, I grow tomatoes, cucumbers, a few different varietals of each, kale, uh, eggplant, squash, roses, you name it. Good for you. Um, wow. I really enjoy it. If you ever need to do something super medita meditative and something that um, you know anchors you to the world when it's chaotic mm -hmm. like it is right now, highly recommend gardening. Both of us yeah. are active gardeners ourselves. In fact, really? uh, I last night right. had... I, I can't, we can a, a ton of sauce and salsa, cucumbers, oh, amazing. all kinds of things. So yeah. Michael has a garden at his house and I have a garden. Actually, it's not actually on my property. My wife's Nana, uh, she allows me to have a huge plot on her property. So it's pretty close and it's, it's a win-win because I'm able to, to help her out in caring for her own garden. And uh, yeah, and then we just, we do a lot of canning in the off season. So actually now's a nice time of the year. A lot of people don't like this time of the winter as much, but we sometimes like to slow down a bit because all fall we spend canning almost mo almost every weekend preparing for the winter. That's amazing. I yeah. haven't quite reached the canning phase of gardening, uh, but I aspire to. So I might tap you at some point in time to learn more about how to get started. <laughs> Any time. Yeah. And, and one of the, I don't know, favorite things is, is in the spring when, you know, the gardeners start again and deciding what to plant and, and being able to plant it. And when it looks really good before the weeds come in and, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> and all the other things like that, that suddenly, suddenly becomes uh, difficult, but uh, yeah, it, it's really fun to do. It is meditative. It's, it's relaxing and it's, it's just, wonderful to see stuff grow and, and sprout and um sadly this year for me my garden did not do well this past year did not do it as well and I, i'm neither. not exactly sure why um because 2020 well, we can just play yeah it's just, it's just exactly it was it was just the whole year you know so the tomatoes they were nice but not as many as we've had before they eggplant never blossomed never did anything they, they produced nothing uh, the varieties of peppers, uh, different colored peppers, which I like to like to uh, virtually nothing. Uh, it was it was incredible how I mean, things didn't just die or anything, but they didn't produce. Uh, Maybe the plants were feeling the existential stress of 2020 <laughs> trauma responses, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, let's get into talking a little bit about your work today. Uh, one of the things we've enjoyed, uh, one of the things we've enjoyed doing is just spending more time getting to know you and, and about you. But even before we do that today, one of the things we've been doing with all of our guests uh, in 2020, but also now in 2021, is just talking a little bit about the pandemic and how it's affected you personally and professionally. And maybe you could just do as, as all of our guests have, share one silver lining that you've seen through the pandemic and then maybe one of the most challenging things that you've had to work through? Yeah, I love that you asked this question. Um, I think one of the big silver linings for me is the opportunity to slow down and be a lot more present and evaluative. And like just even speaking to what we were saying just a moment ago about gardening, like actually noticing the flowers blooming mm. and watching it change day by day. Whereas before I simply wasn't uh, around enough or present enough or aware enough to really see that process happening. Like I can remember in March, April, um, walking around New York City in the thick of the pandemic before we really knew what was going on, like going on a daily walk and just being absolutely stunned by the blossoms on trees a lot of cherry blossoms in my neighborhood in Bed-Stuy and Magnolias and just like watching the flowers open in the thick of the pandemic where there's so much death around you, but yet trees still bloom 
was absolutely mind blowing to me and just like very beautiful and cathartic. Um, so that was definitely a silver lining is just to witness that and to be fully present for it. And then of course, beyond that, while we're all sheltered at home and sheltering in place, uh, I've started calling my friends on the phone, which never happened really before the pandemic. You know, we might schedule a phone call or text back and forth, but now we just call each other while we're like grabbing lunch or like cleaning our apartments. And that has been so, so lovely. And I think that's a habit that I want to stay with me for the rest of my life. And I feel so silly saying that because I know that like our parents do that, like maybe even you do that. Uh, But I feel like that was never something that, um, that was never a habit that I had before the pandemic. And I'm super grateful for that. And then in terms of challenges, I think it's, you know, the existentialism that everyone's facing, way too much evaluative time on your hands. It's like the excess of being present. <laughs> um, so there can be too much. Well, I ask a question about what, you know, living in New York City, which was for a while such an epicenter yeah. uh, of the coronavirus and the pandemic. And talk a little bit about what that was like. Uh, was that a was that a frightening time for you? Um, how it isolated was. how isolated were you? What 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 did it feel like? Um, it it was definitely a very fearful time uh, because at that point in time we didn't really know what was happening. We didn't know how COVID spread. I can remember at one point in time, like I belong to my neighborhood CSA, um, which is where I get most of my produce. When it's when I'm not growing things in my garden, and um, I can remember the first time after the shelter-in-place orders went into effect, I had to like gear up to go out to pick up my produce box, and like I put on like dish gloves, and then I put on like a t-shirt mask, but I didn't have a mask yet, and like everyone was so scared to like walk past each other on the sidewalk because like we just didn't know how COVID spread at that point, like. People are saying six feet, but like people were taking it very, very seriously. Um, And people were just scared to be around each other. Um, So it was a very fearful time in New York. And then of course, in April, there was just like this overwhelming silence in the city um, of a lack of activity, no street traffic, which is super unusual in New York. And then Mm -hmm. there was several weeks where it was just siren after siren after siren of ambulances picking people up and taking them to the hospital. And it was just really heartbreaking. Like it was very, very, very sobering. I've never seen a city like that. I mean, as a follow-up to that, have you been able to take some time to grieve and to process that? Are you still grieving? I I mean, grief is an ongoing journey as we all know and have experienced, but. Um, I think. I mean, yes and no. Like I want to say yes, but I, I have the feeling that it'll come to me in moments down the line of, you know, like months later after this is all said and done and we're going back to our normal lives. If it's just like hitting me, I can imagine that happening. Um, I certainly tried to take it a little bit easier this year with work and, you know, really take care of myself and prioritize mental health. Uh, but that's not necessarily the same thing as like processing and grieving. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your work, so let's talk a little bit about that. <laughs> and thanks for your vulnerability today. Of course. Thank you. So for those of you tuning in to today, we got connected with Sarah through another mutual connection of ours, one, one of our former guests in season three, loneliness researcher Casley Killam. And every Wednesday, Casley, around noon, around the noon hour on the West Coast was where she's from. If you remember, she did that interview from her bathroom, which we all uh, laughed about uh, in San Francisco, does a live Instagram conversation, probably not from her bathroom, though, with people in a related field of study, as well as practitioners. And one of those conversations was with Sarah. And immediately afterwards, we messaged Sarah to ask if she would join us as her work seems to deeply connect with our work at Someone to Tell It To. Particularly, one statement stood out to us where you said, I believe that it is our collective responsibility to create environments and cultures in which everyone is seen, heard, and valued. When each of us belongs, we can transform together. Just love that. Mm-hmm. So for many of our listeners who aren't familiar with you or your work, would you tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, and what brought you into this field? Take us back to that moment 
or moments <laughs> when you knew this was something you needed to invest your time and energy into? And that's a really meaty question. Um, <laughs> yes, I would describe myself as a community designer and an organizational designer, which sometimes people are like, what does that mean? Uh, it's really research and strategy to bring together groups of people, whether that's in a community or within a team. Um, so my work is very applicable to any sort of group dynamic or bringing people together, building together. Um, I've had a pretty windy career path. This is certainly not the work that I ever thought that I'd be doing, though I'm pretty happy that it has ended up here and brought me here. Um, I thought that I was going to have a career in politics. When I was, you know, in high school, I thought that I would like start some sort of social services nonprofit. And then I quickly figured out that I really wanted to do something that was solutions oriented. I think that's really important in my work is that I really love to help solve problems and identify solutions and move them forward, not just like put band-aids on things. Um, so I worked on Hillary Clinton's Senate 06 campaign. I worked at a nonprofit to help candidates run for local office in New York City. I actually was elected to a local seat in an election district myself when I was 21. Hmm. Um, and then it came time to graduate from college and I was like, oh no, I have student loans. Like I can't actually afford this. Um, so I quickly was like, I need to figure out something else. And um, around that time, the market was crashing. I went to NYU's career center and I was like, what do I do? I have all this like really interesting experience, but I can't pursue this path. It's not uh, realistic for me. And they're like, well, Goldman Sachs is gonna be on campus next week. You should go talk to them. And I was like, what's Goldman? Um, and like, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, I had a job offer from Goldman, still not really knowing what Goldman did. And it was also the only job offer that I got. So even though in this discovery process, I was realizing, you know, Goldman is not a place that I actually wanna work. I felt pretty uh, pressured into taking that offer since it was the only opportunity that was standing in front of me. And I was looking at a pile of student loan debt. So I took this job, I stayed for two years. I ended up working in tech afterwards with companies like Catch a Fire and TaskRabbit, really focusing on um, realigning my work with more mission-driven, more of a mission-driven focus. Um, I really wanted to reroute into my values, but also in my time at Goldman, I realized that I was very effective in the private sector and I really loved business. Like I love the ability to build things, ship them, move them forward. And I love the speed of business as compared to the speed of politics. So I determined at that point in time after leaving Goldman that I wanted to stay in the private sector, but I wanted to do work that was much more meaningful. So I worked with uh, different companies in tech and started finding these really interesting opportunities. I started freelancing. And when I was freelancing, um, you know, this was back in like 2011, 2012, and I was just taking the work that was available to me, but also trying to really, um, again, pursue work that was values aligned with me. And I kept coming up against these projects or coming, being invited into these projects that were very community oriented, community driven, customer centric, really about understanding what it is that people need and then how to solve that problem. Um, so that period of time in that series of freelance work um, resulted in me starting my first company, Loyal, which was a uh, consulting firm that focused specifically on community design development and strategy. And through uh, Loyal, I worked with all different kinds of companies ranging from Grammarly and Google, uh, 100K and 10, uh, AARP, National Geographic, all different kinds of organizations across sectors on community development and strategy. It was a really fulfilling period of time, though I did face um, a turning point um, eventually. And I, I remember earlier I mentioned that I was taking a break from work back in like 2016 and I started gardening. This was around that period of time. I was starting to realize the limitations of uh, our community design and development work. And I felt like um, we were doing really powerful, amazing work, but we couldn't quite affect the change that we wanted to see. And uh, we started to see that in order for our work to be as effective and impactful as possible on behalf of customers, users, community members, stakeholders, that we needed to begin to shift our focus to organizational change. That community change in itself was not possible unless organizations were also transforming. And oftentimes the key to community-driven change is organizational change. And then beyond that, personal change as well. 
And this was really well embodied with our work with the American Medical Association, um, which came later in 2017, 2018, where we were working with them to help uh, reimagine the physician experience and how the American Medical Association is in relationship with its physician members. And um, we saw that in order for the American Medical Association to uh, be in deep membership and community with their physicians, they needed to change how they internally operated as a company. Uh, so we worked really closely with Todd Unger, who's their chief experience officer, to reimagine uh, both what physician engagement looks like and membership, and then how that um, was reflected back internally inside the company in terms of how they allocated resources, how they structure their team, what internal capacities needed to develop and why. Um, and ultimately after that project, I, I uh, took a step back and I was like, you know what, I think there's something here. And um, the way that we've packaged and positioned Loyal as a community design development and strategy consulting firm, isn't as, uh, this isn't like the right package or the right sandbox, so to speak. Like we have outgrown the sandbox that we built. So then I created Sharehold. And Sharehold is an innovation and consulting firm that works with communities and teams to design belonging for change. Majority of our clients are going through significant periods of transformation. Either they've launched something that has been extremely successful uh, perhaps they launched something and experienced failure and uh, need to figure out how to turn it around, or they're just at the crossroads of uncertainty and are unsure where to go next. But what brings our clients together is that they do want to bring both their community and external stakeholders or customers together with their team and their internal stakeholders, which might include uh, employees, board members, perhaps funders or um, foundations and bring them all around a shared strategy and help them move forward and transform together. So it's really about inclusive stakeholder models, mutuality, co-ownership, participation, and an embodiment of values in business and really bringing together um, this idea that shareholding is not reserved for purely financial stakeholders, but is an active value and process that can be applicable for any stakeholder within a business context to develop new solutions and programs and products. You talk about and, and, and write about belonging in, yeah. you know, in the midst of all of this. And so before we go any further, we, we want to be, I want to ask you, could you describe what it means to belong, what belonging is and what it's not? And, yeah. and maybe a few examples from the work that you've done from your research and experience. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting as part of the reason why Sharehold began researching belonging is because there's not a very strong consensus about what belonging means. Uh, there's a few different narratives that exist in our culture about what is belonging. And when you talk to one person versus another, they might describe it differently. And even in our own initial research, we saw that um, people were talking about belonging in different ways. And that was a, a really big reason why we started researching belonging. Um, I mean, we've been, as a culture, we've been talking about belonging for probably half a century, even longer, 70 years or so. Um, in Sharehold's research, when we talk about belonging, we are referring to the definition that was developed by researchers Dr. Bonnie M. Haggerty and Dr. Kathleen Patuski, and they define belonging as uh, two specific attributes. One is valued involvement, the experience of being seen, valued, and needed, and accepted for who you are, and two, fit, the perceived quote-unquote fitting in or identifying with the groups or systems, characteristics, and needs. I will say that uh, more recently in culture, there's been a pushback against this attribute of fitting in. Um, I think that this attribute is largely misunderstood. People think of it as conformity, but it could be something as simple as my team needs data science skills and you have data science skills, therefore your skills fit in here. It could be something much more superficial, um, though sometimes it is perceived as being more conformist and it's, it's really, that's not necessarily true. Um, this definition developed by Bonnie M. Haggerty is it's a little bit in contrast to Brene Brown's definition of belonging. Brene Brown talks about the concept of true belonging, which is the idea of self-acceptance that you only belong as much as you belong to yourself. We found in our research at Sharehold on uh, belonging at work in a time of uncertainty that that definition of true belonging 
or that um, state of true belonging, I would say, is very much of an aspiration, but not necessarily a reality for many people, particularly when it comes to people's place of work. Um, and for, especially for those with any kind of marginalized identity, particularly BIPOC, um, belonging is inherently a relational concept and self-acceptance and um, your self-belonging will only take you so far in regards to the group, uh, particularly when it comes to your work environment. Because it's very much like an aspiration. I have so many opinions on that, but I will save that for <laughs> later in our conversation. Um, and then also I would say a third way that people talk about belonging is purely in regards to a group aspect. So it's all about um, how do you belong within a group of people? And what we found in our research is that there's something a little bit in between those two concepts. If you think about true belonging is self-acceptance being purely individualistic and belonging as being a group dynamic, there's something that's a little bit in between. And ultimately our research found that there's four different types of belonging. There's foundational belonging, self-belonging, group belonging, and societal belonging. And this is a way to really um, evaluate and understand the current states of belonging today. And I wouldn't say that one type of belonging is more important than another. It's very much of like these types of belonging are interdependent and relational to, with each other and might ebb and flow and react to strengths or weaknesses and other types of belonging. So they're um, inherently intertwined. We would imagine that you are working with a lot of places that haven't thought much about this on a collective level. Maybe individuals have thought much about this topic or they have experienced a lack of belonging, but it hasn't been addressed corporately. What's that cultural shift been like and where do organizations begin? Is there some form of a lit litmus test? One of the things we've done in our creating a caring culture training at someone to tell to is to literally carry a mirror with us and have everyone in the room take a good hard look in the mirror along with the question, how are you adding or detracting from the culture you wish to be a part of? Mm, I love the visualization of that. Um, before I answer, I wanted to throw that back to you. Like, what's the litmus test for your work as someone to tell it to? Like, when is an organization ready to bring you in? Well, we've worked with several different organizations. Uh, we do a lot of work in healthcare in particular. And we can think of some of the, the medical communities that we've worked with that there's been tension at times between, you know, maybe direct staff, doctors and nurses from higher end administrators, because administrators tend to look a little bit more numbers focused and doctors and nurses tend to be a little bit more empathetic, compassionate, care focused. And there can be a little bit of a tension there between the two. And as a result, they have a hard time truly hearing one another. And there can create, it could create tension and a, and a lack of belonging within the work culture. So we've, we've worked with several healthcare communities where we're trying our best to help everyone truly listen to each other's perspectives. Uh, it's all about, as Brene would say, perspective taking and, and how do they take the perspective of an administrator if you're a doctor who is focused more on numbers to meet certain goals that they need to meet financially so that people have a job. But then on the, the flip side, how do CEOs work with their doctors and nurses to give them permission to give patients the kind of care that they need? So. It's been fascinating. We've, we've done a lot of work in healthcare and, and it's been a, it's been a common issue. I think especially because we are about the work of listening and, and so often, you know, both the administrators and the practitioners aren't always in a space where they can listen well to one another, but there's also an under, so there's that part, there's, there's a problem there. And there's also particularly, I think there's a growing, certainly a growing understanding of the need to listen to the people who, for whom they serve and to understand what it is they really need, what they're really looking for, what would really help uh, their situation. And just so often when they're, you know, the, the job of, of record keeping and, 
and having to document and and you know all of the all of the administrative functions that need to happen that you know that are mandated or that are required it it can detract from actually listening uh, to one another and to the people who are being served and 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 therefore everyone is a bit unsatisfied and sometimes a lot unsatisfied or dissatisfied and you know that creates tension so i think that the point at which we are often called in is because there's some sort of crisis mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a there's just a disconnect and and there's a realization that something's not working and that the team is not functioning well it's not functioning as a unit is and is not um, appreciating or affirming uh, of of one another and and there's a realization that they're not perhaps getting the job done that they need to get done. Yeah, we look forward to that. Yep. Yeah. So that, that's often the, the, the case and, and, you know, trying to, we, you know, one of the things we can try to do is help in those situations the to bring together the different, factions so so to speak and and have them hear one another listen to one another as to from their various perspectives For it's our, not always easy and it's, sometimes it's painful um but but it's also necessary for our listeners, we ref- reference this this mirror illustration that we've used periodically, and and they've heard this story before. But I'm going to tell it again, where we were working with an organization, healthcare organization locally here in Central Pennsylvania, and we had wanted to come in and and when we run our caring culture training, we kind of think that what we offer works because it's proven to work in, in a culture. If you actually allow us to come in and fully lead the training, the way that we feel compelled to lead it. And we had come into a, an organization and we had offered to meet initially with all the lower level staff, i.e. the practitioners with, and then another meeting with the higher level staff of the administrators and, uh, and then bring the two parties together because there was severe conflict within the organization and they wouldn't allow us to do that. And, wow. and as a result, it just, um, it, it never, they were never able to truly work through their issues because they, yeah. they were in some ways kind of hiding things, I think, and they weren't really giving a good hard look in the mirror at themselves. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I also have found that some of our less successful projects are because um, the client is unwilling to look at themselves in the mirror, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, which I think is sometimes the, the unexpected outcome of our work is like, you know, people will sometimes bring, our clients are often bringing us in for a customer centric challenge or like an organizational strategy challenge. But what they often do not anticipate is the level of um, self challenge and self-work that is required to bring a strategy into fruition and even to solve the problem. Um, So that's very relatable. Um, I would say in regards to belonging in this specific work stream for shareholds, it's very much in progress. I would say belonging is still emergent and it's accelerating due to COVID-19 and all the conversations that we've had over 2020 about racial justice and around loneliness and mental health. Um, It's been really interesting because often, at least what I've seen over the past year, which again is like a very limited track record, but this is truly the amount of time in which, you know, industry is changing and where this is merging. Um, Most organizations, I would say like our, their litmus tests for talking about belonging is because of there's been a major fracture Uh, and they're talking about belonging in relationship to DEI. And certainly belonging is related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, though it's much more of an outcome of having a successful diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. And there's many other elements within belonging as well. Um, So belonging is, I would say, at an intersection of topic, but currently when organizations are ready to talk about belonging, it's because they've experienced something that is deeply uncomfortable. They've um, experienced and noticed a division within their team and they're looking to heal it. I would say, however, 
you cannot address belonging within your organization without also addressing DEI. So really like you do need to prioritize DEI before you can even open that conversation. Um, but I don't know if we're at the tipping point as like an industry yet. I would love to see more organizations um, approach belonging proactively. We have found in our research out of the resulting frameworks that came out of it, which is an assessment tool for assessing the four different types of belonging is that it's really helpful as a diagnostic tool of where to focus your energy and time going forward for building a culture of belonging. Um, what's been interesting is, you know, we're currently working on this project with a large company that is opening a new office campus in a new location. And it's been such an interesting experience being a fly on the wall in this project and being privy to these really interesting larger corporate strategy conversations when they're talking about belonging, they're talking about belonging in the context of um, increasing their organizational success over the next 10 to 20 years. They're saying things like, we need to improve belonging for our employees because it impacts their mental health and their wellness and their ability to collaborate as a team. And that impacts our productivity, which impacts our PL, which um, when it comes to talking about belonging in terms of profit and loss, like it has like a very um, gut reaction to me. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. like that's so uh, cold and um, like not the point of belonging. <laughs> and to talk about belonging in the sense of a PL and even to like advocate for belonging from a business case, it feels very dirty in some ways because. Yes, like there is a significant business case of belonging. In fact, um, one of the studies that we cited in our research was um, an article in HBR. Um, the author is escaping me at the moment, but there's a really fantastic stat that a company investing in belonging can save up to $52 million per year for a team of 10,000 people due to um, an increase in productivity and a reduction in sick days and absenteeism and so on and so on. So there is a significant bottom line impact for belonging. However, when the emotional devastation of a lack of belonging in the human, when the emotional devastation is so strong and so uh, extreme and the uh, human need is so high, it feels very crude to speak about belonging in that context. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done that can really create the business case for belonging. For example, like directly tying belonging to employee productivity, though, um, Sometimes I'm like, yes, we need that. And then other times I'm like, I don't even want to touch this topic because it feels so dirty. But that's the reality is how many, how of how some organizations, particularly large corporations are thinking about belonging right now. They're thinking about it in terms of like the future of work, uh, the future of society and how they can win over not just like the next one year, but the next 20 years. So we'd love for yeah. you to begin to answer your own question here. How does uncertainty impact one's sense of belonging at work? <laughs> uh, the answer to that is really straightforward. Uncertainty magnifies existing experiences of belonging. We saw in our research that um, belonging did decrease with the onset of COVID-19 and the rapid shift to working from home. However, it did not decrease as significantly as we would have anticipated that rather it was this larger existing experience of belonging that existed prior to COVID-19 that was being amplified. So if you felt that you had a really strong belonging experience prior to COVID-19 and this experience of uncertainty that we had in 2020, you probably still felt to some extent or maybe even more so an experience of belonging. But if you felt that you did not belong prior to COVID-19, you probably much more extremely feel that you do not belong now. So um, the experience of uncertainty that we all saw in COVID-19 really made it much more acute and highlighted how belonging at work falls short in general before COVID-19. And it helped us to understand the factors of belonging on a much deeper level and really articulate and define those four different types of belonging. So it just made things much more clear and um, much more strong, much more strongly experienced. We'll take a time out for a second and just uh, note the fact that the sun is just glaring down on you through your apartment right now. It is. It's actually reflecting from a window across the street. Oh, really? <laughs> like oh, the wow. sun is shining on a window and the window is like reflecting into my apartment. 
Well, in the middle of winter, we'll take all the sun we can That's get. That's right. Absolutely. Like, this is the magic hour. Yeah. Well, well, in light of what you were just talking about with COVID and, and, and people feeling even perhaps like they belong less, uh, you know, with, with the distance and isolation and, and everything going on, have you learned some things about how to help alleviate that? Uh, what, what have you learned um, in relation to this, the, this additional stress that, that most people are under, yeah. and how, how to achieve a greater sense of belonging in an organization? I think that's a very worthy question. For the research that we conducted in 2020, it was more focused on understanding the landscape of belonging and how does belonging or how does uncertainty impact one sense of belonging. So it wasn't as solution-oriented as I might have preferred. Though certainly there were indications in our research of what solutions might look like. Um, from an organizational and company level, one of the big outcomes and part of the reason why I was so excited to talk to the two of you was that organizations really need to begin listening to their employees. They need to uh, do this. Oh, you can, my cat is joining our conversation now. I don't know if you can hear her. <laughs> we can, actually we can. <laughs> I love those interruptions. Clark just mentioned, I, we actually were interviewed on another podcast just the other day and it went live. And uh, in the middle of that interview, I was interrupted several times with my kids running around through the room. And <laughs> just, it's all part of the, part of the just experience. Anna Banana, she wants to say hi. <laughs> uh, nice. Um, I'm sorry, where were we? <laughs> You, uh, you said that you, you identified some potential solutions. Oh, yes. Um, well, of our research participants, some of them were very, very adamant that we can't just simply have like a checklist of like, you need to do one, two, three things to foster a culture belonging. But one of the key recommendations that was consistent across all of our research participants was the um, effort of listening, which is why I was so excited to chat with your team uh, because listening is one of the most effective ways that you can begin to create and foster a culture belonging. And not just listening on a superficial level, like with pulse check surveys that are really common in employee engagement metrics and employee engagement efforts, but really deep conversations to understand people's needs and then um, taking those identified needs and taking action on them. So public, like taking public accountability for what is learned in those conversations and then co-developing solutions together. Um, one of the models that came up in our research that was mentioned by um, one of our research participants was this um, concept of a citizen's ladder of engagement that's commonly used in community organizing and urban development models. And it's this idea that we need to move up the ladder of citizen participation, citizen engagement, from superficial uh, passive listening, which is more of like tokenization, manipulation towards co-creation. So listening and then co-building and building co-ownership over solutions that come out of that listening process and sharing the responsibility and power in developing new solutions. Um, and of course, like that's very abstract. Um, and on a high level, but that's like what we should be thinking about when we're thinking about building cultures of belonging is how do we listen? How do we identify solutions together? How do we make people part of the process and have co-ownership over this? Um, and then beyond that, there's like some really simple tactical things like when it comes to foundational belonging, which is really about acknowledging that you are a human being who contributes value by the mere fact of existing. Uh, it's understanding that people uh, have lives outside of work, that they have children to take care of, that uh, you know we're going through a really stressful time and someone might be experiencing increased anxiety right now. Um, and just like providing the very basics of what we need to function as human beings, not just at work, but beyond work as well. So this next question that we wanted to talk about, uh, it, it's something we're really looking forward to talking about just because it's so relevant. In an article written by Kira M. Newman in September 28th, to, September 28th, 2017 entitled how do we cultivate belonging in a culture that is so divided and she writes america is in the midst of a spiritual crisis of disconnection and that's my opinion but a finding from some of the latest research by social scientist brene brown when 
Brown talks about a spiritual crisis, she's using a very specific definition of spirituality, one that emerged from the research beside her, behind her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, the recognition that we're all inextricably connected to each other through love and compassion. But according to Brown's research, people today feel they are losing that <laughs> sense of shared humanity. She writes, the world feels heartbroken to me right now, she writes. We've sorted ourselves into factions based on our politics and ideology. We've turned away from one another and toward blame and rage. We're lonely and untethered and scared, so damn scared. Brene goes on to give four keys to true belonging, and she says, number one, make contact with people you disagree with. Two, share collective joy and pain. Three, speak up nicely when you disagree. <laughs> Number four, embrace the paradox. So based on that article and from your research, what do you think about this idea of a spiritual crisis of disconnection? And what are your thoughts about Brene's list of ways to cultivate true belonging? Would there be anything you might add? Uh, we are absolutely in a spiritual crisis. The day that we're recording this is... Um, this is January 7th, so yesterday was the coup um, when we were trying to certify Biden's election. Like if, if that is not the greatest example of the sense of disconnection and spiritual crisis that we're experiencing right now as a culture, I don't know what is. Like we are absolutely in a crisis moment and that is reflected across all facets of culture. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Like I absolutely agree with those four keys to true belonging that Brene mentions. And I'm a huge fan and advocate of her work. In fact, I recently completed her um, Dare to Lead training program. I saw that in your bio. Um, it was amazing. I highly recommend it. She's been a huge source of inspiration and certainly her models for working through shame and conflict have been really fascinating. Um, though I think it's been really interesting because um, our research presented an alternate perspective on belonging than Brene's. Uh, and I think this makes sense because our, our research was focused on the experience of belonging at work from the perspective of employees. Whereas Brene Brown's work really is focused on leaders, people who are very actualized, who have built companies and are at the top of their game, so to speak. And in some regards, this idea of true belonging, which is focused solely on self-acceptance, it's, and for like a lack of, I don't, I'm going to be blunt about this. I think it's a very privileged perspective. Uh, and I think that Brene actually would agree with that uh, based on her more recent podcast and even the updates that she's made to the Dare to Lead programming. Um, fully optimizing to belonging to yourself is, it's a highly individualistic venture, I would say. Um, the reality is, is that we are in inherently in relational environments, particularly when it comes to places like work, where you're accountable to delivering on a task and, um, you know, getting along with your boss, getting along with your team. If I showed up at work and was like, you know what, I'm just totally gonna be myself today, whatever you guys need, you know, I'm just gonna do my thing. And this is what I need from you. Like that's not going to work for the majority of people <laughs> at work. <laughs> like that's not like to say that you're optimizing for true belonging at work in a group environment like that is it's a highly privileged perspective. Um, and in some ways, like I think that's really well epitomized in American culture right now. That is, it's a hyper individualistic culture. So it makes sense that that narrative has landed so well um, in a hyper individual individualistic American culture where we're optimizing for true belonging. But uh, it's ideal that we find communities, and I, wouldn't, I don't wanna say but there, I would say and, it is ideal that we find communities and places of work where we are able to operate in a mode of true belonging and also um, are able to operate within the context of a group and a team as well. Like ideally, both those things are true and optimized all the time. Though that's not reality for most people particularly for people with marginalized identities. And instead I would say it's significantly more nuanced. So how can you create space for others to be themselves, especially if you're someone in a position of power such as an employer or a manager of a team? Um, how does your community or place of work support four different types of belonging 
where people are seen, valued, and recognized for who they are and how they contribute. And people also know the value of what it is that they bring to the table. And you're creating opportunities for them to step into their own goals, into their own power, into the way in which they want to belong. Uh, so it's really much more of like a give and a take. And also beyond that, what, are, what does it mean to um, have fit within a team or within a community? Um, what is it, what are like the specific attributes that you need within this group? Like whether it's that data science skill set or it's someone who is really effective at listening, such as the two of you. Mm -hmm. um, like what is the, what does it mean to fit within this group and how do we attract people that uh, are aligned with that? So it's much more of like a, a give and a take and like a relational dynamic than what I believe true belonging um, really stands for. And I think that's a really interesting topic. Like I would love in my dream scenario to sit down with Renee at some point in time and have a really honest conversation about this. Sure. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting tension and um, I would love to see people talk about this more. Well, if you get her attention, you let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wondersfound or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. In the work that you've been doing, what's been the most radical reshaping of a culture that you've seen? You know, what had to occur for you know, such a transformation to happen? I mean, can you give an example or examples of, of where you've seen that kind of reshaping? Yeah, going back to the example I mentioned earlier of our work with the American Medical Association, I think that was a pretty radical reshaping of culture. You know, in that project, we were brought in with this objective of um, reimagining physician engagement as members of the AMA. And I can remember in that project being nervous during our research because a lot of our findings were related to the team dynamics and the culture of AMA, as opposed to purely like the outward facing engagement with physicians. And I remember being like, wow, like we were not hired to say this. Um, this is a little bit outside the bounds of what, um, what they're expecting to hear from us. And I remember when we brought up the topic in our meeting, having like a bunch of nerves of being like, I don't know how people are going to react to this. But when we shared the insight that one of the greatest uh, opportunities for them in terms of physician engagement was reimagining their own culture and sense of uh, performance evaluation as a company, you could just see around the room, there was this um, sigh of relief of like, oh, somebody finally said it out loud. <laughs> Uh, like they'd all been feeling it. They had communicated it to us in different ways. And they were just like waiting for someone to officially name it and give them permission to call out that um, the way that they measured success as individuals and as a team was no longer working as an organization. Um, so they really had to undergo this shift between um, or undergo the shift of evaluating performance based on activity. Uh, which is, you know, not that really uncommon for many organizations, like a lot of orgs are activity-based, like I shipped X, um, but they're needed to move towards a culture of outcomes, which is when you're in relationship with people like your community members, it's really about that mutual value exchange of what is it that I can do for you and how are you benefiting me and how do we support each other in mutual success? And so in order to create that culture and community, they needed to become much more outcomes driven and measure their employee performance with outcomes. Um, and, and that's just like one example in some of our projects, it's much more personal in terms of transformation and how they're reshaping the culture. 
like one project that's coming to mind for me at this moment is um, some work we did with a pop-up synagogue here in New York City called Labshul, which is a, a radical, God-optional, artist-driven synagogue that has um, a very diverse membership compared to the majority of synagogues. And I can remember in many of our conversations with their board, their board undergoing this process of, um, oh, like this reimagination of the future of our organization and how we're going to be in relationship with our members within this shawl going forward. It's not about what I want as a board member. And just because, you know, I am one of the highest donors and contributors to this organization, it's, I'm not going to necessarily um, be able to prioritize my needs. I need to prioritize the needs of the community. And I think that was such a powerful transformation and transition for them to shift their perspective of me-centric to us and community. Uh, that was incredibly powerful. And I can remember like a couple of there was a couple of calls where like I almost cried because I was like, wow, this is this is very beautiful um, to witness this happening and to see that shift. So uh, on that point, could you get personal with us for a minute? And when have when and where have you felt as if you most belonged? Um, how does listening intersect with belonging? <laughs> um I think that's a very meta challenge for me. And, um, you know, earlier I was listening to your conversation with Casley and she mentioned this, uh, she said something that really resonated with me and that she was often the one that was listening to other people and that she realized that no one was really listening to her. And I think that's very true for me. And I would say that's probably true for a lot of people who do this kind of work is that, um, we are attracted to this work because we have felt that we have not belonged or we have uh, lacked community or have not been listened to or we have felt our own social isolation. So that's something that I personally struggle with on a deep level and it's something like I'm always um, wading through and it's very much a case of like the cobbler's shoes. <laughs> yeah. Hence the need to have those phone conversations that you had talked about earlier in this. Program. I know. Yeah. But there are some places where I really do feel like I have deep belonging. Uh, one that's coming top of mind for me right now is I'm part of a design mastermind group that um, was started a few years ago, started by my friend Lauren. Um, and I feel like I have like deep affinity for them. Like they've been such a great so source of support for me over both COVID-19, but our careers generally. Uh, we started this group because um, there's not a lot of, initially we started it, I would say, because there's not a lot of female design leaders. There's many women who work in design, but the thought leaders are mostly men. Eventually we realized that like, it's not just women, it's actually anybody with a marginalized identity. And we like, sort of expanded that um, vision and mandate of the group but it's very informally organized. I think as uh, people who are constantly caretakers for others, all of us are sort of like exhausted when it comes to caretaking. So um, we've made a point to be very low key about the group. <laughs> it's not very well formally organized. And I think even like the way in which we operate in that regards makes us all feel that we belong a little bit more because we know that it's not because people do not care or they're not committed. If like no one's sending out the notes or like updating the meeting invite, it's literally just that we all are taking care of so many people all the time yep. and that our job is to create space for others that sometimes we just need to create a little bit of space for ourselves. And that's been um, a really interesting meta dynamic of the group. Uh, so I feel that I very much belong there. We actually literally just had this conversation yesterday, just really? about <laughs> being quote unquote professional listeners. Yeah. We can, we can attend outside groups and it can become just another listening session for us listening to a lot more people's, a lot of more people's problems, which we love to do. Don't get us wrong. I mean, that's what we feel very compelled to do each and every day. It's what gets us out of bed every morning. However, it can also be exhausting and there's all, it's all yeah. about setting parameters and boundaries at times and knowing your limits. So. Absolutely. That 100% resonates. And I think something that I've been personally working on over the past few years is actualizing that for myself of um, 
making sure that I'm speaking up and saying what it is that I need when I come to the table and not just listening. And that's been a really uncomfortable and difficult exercise for me, but I'm getting better at it. Yeah. Good for you. Well, we understand that then too, and sometimes struggle. Uh, yeah. Same things. So understand. We've got just a couple a couple more questions before we close today. As we've talked about before, you, you've had training, uh, you know, in, in Brene Brown's work and in her research. And uh, we want to talk about the, the training you, you've had in, on her research on shame, vulnerability, and empathy, and how you can put those terms, those things into practice for teams. We'd love for you to talk a little bit about the impact of each of those aspects on a team or a group, shame, vulnerability, and empathy. Yeah. Um, Brene says in her work that shame is what holds us back from vulnerability. Uh, there's like a lack of psychological safety, a fear of not just being of not just feeling that you that your behavior is bad, that, but that you are bad as a person. And that's how she defines shame. And when we activate or participate in shaming behaviors within teams and groups, and that could be something like the meeting that happens after the meeting, back channeling, um, interruption, gaslighting. Uh, there's like, she has like a whole list of types of shaming behaviors that show up within groups and teams at work, which, you know, once you start seeing the list, you're like, oh, I've done that. Or, oh, I've experienced that. Like they're very common workplace behaviors. And it makes you realize how common and all the different ways that shame shows up at work and how people might even use shame as like a weapon in the workplace, which is very, very dangerous. Uh, but she would say that shaming behaviors create shields that we, um, that we try to protect ourselves from shame either by pushing against people, pushing them away, or sometimes like shutting down and withdrawing. Uh, and when we use and utilize those shields, whether it's from a self-protection mode or from an attack mode, that is the opposite of creating an environment of belonging. And that the more we're able to be vulnerable and show up with our full selves and with the awareness and like let go of shame, the more deeply we're able to belong. Absolutely. And yeah. That's why we just have appreciated your work so much, uh, because you're steeping yourself in a lot of the, the same messages and, and topics that we, we live and breathe each and every day. Well, thank you for your work too. Um, I was so excited to learn about someone to tell it to feel that your work is really needed right now. So I get to ask the last question and I'm excited about this. So we'd <laughs> like, we'd like to end our time together with another question about you personally, and I had referenced earlier about your biography and that you said you enjoy gardening, which we've talked about. But the other two, we'd like to just briefly talk about watercoloring and being present. We <laughs> talked about the first one earlier, but could you talk about those other two and how those keep you emotionally and would say spiritually healthy? Yeah, I mean, watercoloring is a way of being present, <laughs> I would say. So maybe watercoloring or maybe pr being present is inclusive of watercoloring. Though I think um, for me, watercoloring is just something I picked up over this past summer. I wouldn't say I'm good at it, but you know, I'm enjoying it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just been a way to cope with the stress and anxiety of COVID and being isolated and really just like a form of creative expression, which I think really closely ties in with the idea of self-belonging and feeling connected to myself. And the more present I can be, the more connected I feel to myself. So it's been a lot of watercoloring, but also long walks, a lot of staring at the wall. Uh, I've been taking a lot of baths actually, which if you're not taking a bath during this period of time, I recommend doing one tonight, you know, fill up a tub with hot water and just sit in it, put your phone away, leave it in the other room and just be present. That sounds amazing. <laughs> you may, may be giving us ideas. Yeah, we actually, we, we have a spiritual discipline, which I think we actually referenced in, in uh, our interview with Casley, is we always read together. It's something we've done since we started, someone to tell to, almost 10 years ago. And uh, we, we just literally ordered yesterday on our Kindles uh, a book by uh, Henry Thoreau, and it's, it's entitled Walking. 
and it's only like 30 or 40 pages, but we've had some of our friends and donors who've recommended that we read it because we walk together, we process together. We were each other, someone to tell it to, hence the, and the some, mission. Someone to tell it to was created, birthed on a walk mm-hmm. we, had, we had together. Wow, so that's beautiful. It's, it's very appropriate, very appropriate, yeah. <laughs> that is very appropriate. Hmm, I've definitely enjoyed taking walks with lots of friends during this period of time you know, the outdoor social distancing. Well, thanks for answering that, that last question, because I know in Brene's podcast, which we, we also tune into pretty regularly, she often will end the conversation by asking the guest, uh, what's something that you'll participate in that will, you'll just lose all sense of time. And we just love that question. And it sounds like watercoloring and being present is one of those ways for you. Gardening. Absolutely. Gardening Gardening for sure too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sarah, this has been so yeah. nice um what a way to spend our afternoon so thank, thank you, you for, for having for me i time. really appreciate it and so, thank so you. lovely to talk with you both tom and michael yeah. uh this has been fun and it's wonderful to meet you and to learn more about you and and to connect and find the common things that we that we all share absolutely thank you so much well we hope you've enjoyed this conversation today because we certainly did And as we end our time together, we want to give another call to action to each of you who have watched and listened today. Um, The challenge is to understand more and more what it means to belong, what belonging is, and and also as Sarah talked about, what it isn't. We know that um, it is important for all of us, especially in this time where in which we, um, you know, experience so much more disconnection, loneliness, in isolation, it's important to belong, to know that we have a community, whether it's a community of colleagues where we work, a community around us uh, in our neighborhood, a community in our friends and our, our family members. And to there's nothing better than to know that we belong. We're accepted, that we're loved, and we, we wish that for everyone today. Well, we hope this conversation was inspiring and educational. We hope that as we referenced in the interview, that maybe this is another opportunity for all of us to take a good hard look in that mirror, that mirror to reflect back on our own lives and our interaction with others and how we can be about the work of fostering true community and connection among our friends, our families, our coworkers, and everyone that we come in contact with. As we mentioned earlier, Dr. King was a man of action, and we can bring that action into our lives every day simply by lifting each other up and challenging inequality and hatred wherever we see it. So, until we listen again.